1980, after a military coup, a new constitution was adopted in Chile. The constitution prioritized property over people, defunded public education, and forced greater privatization of public services. In 2020, voters in Chile passed a measure to write a new constitution that would expand democracy with government aiming at supporting people over profit. To provide some context to discuss this feat in Western democracy about rewriting a constitution, we are joined by Jennifer Piscopo, fourth cousins of Joe Piscopo, no, we don't know that to be true, of Occidental College, and Peter Ciavellas from Wake Forest. Jennifer, welcome. Thank you so much for having us. And Peter, welcome to you. Good to be here, Jeff. Thanks. So the uh, you're at Occidental. I should say, by the way, that Occidental, while a small school, is where my brother, my mother, my cousin, my aunt, my grandfather, and my grandmother all attended for college. That is amazing. There's a lot of points of overlap that we've been figuring out here in the past few minutes, but that's really great. <laughs> Peter, is it Wake Forest? Peter, what got you in? What got you and Jennifer engaged in this uh, conversation? I'm happy to call it both of you professor if you prefer. No. Just no, Peter, please, please. All right. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's like everything in life. You know, you usually end up where you are because of a lot of little accidents. Um, Back in the 80s, I was an exchange student in Spain, and I was watching the whole democratic transition take place in Spain, you know, right after Franco died, and um, just really got interested in Spanish language and literature and uh, Spanish Spanish politics. And then sure enough, when I went back to grad school, um, I ended up working for um, Arturo Valenzuela, who's a, a well-known person who studies Chile. And he was studying the democratic transition in Chile, and I was fascinated by the parallels between Chile and Spain, and that's really what sparked my interest in studying um, studying Latin America. And Jennifer, what about you? How did always yeah. been studying Latin America and Chile, or was there something about this episode and rewriting a constitution that particularly piqued your interest? Yeah, so I grew up in Massachusetts, even though I'm on the east, I'm on the west coast now. But I grew up in Massachusetts, and so if you grew up in New England, you're really imbued with the mythology of the American Revolution. Every school trip involves some aspect of the American Revolution. So for me, going to college, you know, I was drawn to Latin America for similar reasons as Peter. This idea of democracy and democratization being something that was happening in our present moment, right? Not something that happened 200 years ago, but something that our contemporaries were struggling with. For me, the really important angle was actually women and women's role in this process, because the mythology of the American Revolution, not a lot of women present. But when Latin American countries democratized in the 1980s, women actually played really active roles in the democratization process. And since then, Latin American countries have taken a lot of steps to promote women in politics. We can talk more about this, but most Latin American countries are electing more women than the United States to Congress. So for me, the real interest um, in Chile in recent years came through this angle of studying women in politics and looking at the recent efforts as part of Chile democratizing um, to incorporate more women into government. So with Peter's expertise in Chile, my sort of expertise in women in politics in the region, we were able to team up and start um, doing research. When did we start, Peter, doing research in Chile together, 2016? Yeah, I think that's right. That's, that, yeah. that's right. We started discussing the possibility of gender quotas and how might that, they might be implemented in Chile and when, because actually Chile was a really late adopter of gender quotas. It was, is it the last country in Latin America, Jen, that did it? So gender quotas are laws that require political parties to run certain proportions of women candidates. Argentina was the first country in the world, not just in Latin America, to adopt one in 1991. Most Latin American countries followed. Um, but Chile was actually one of the last to adopt it in 2016. 
but there's still two countries that don't have one, and that's El Salvador and Venezuela. And it is funny. Like, Guatemala and Venezuela, excuse me. Guatemala. I mean, it, it is funny because, um, you know, a, a, Americans just really don't know much about this, about the concept of gender quotas at all. Yeah. And I recall when Jen, Jen was making a visit to Winston-Salem because we we're working on one of our projects together, and I asked her to do a public talk for um, our students because, first of all, Jen's super smart, and her work is super interesting, and what she works on is very, very interesting. And this was right before the election of Hillary Clinton, well, the defeat of Hillary Clinton, right? Um, but a student in the back of the room, I don't know if you remember this, Jen, a student in the back of the room raised her hand and said, Professor Piscopo, do you think that the Latin Americans are gonna learn from us now that we have had a woman Demo Democratic presidential candidate? And I thought, oh my gosh, Jen, oh my gosh, I thought her head was going to explode. No, because, I'm very nice to students. Peter. No, but because she was a student and it was asked in really, you know, <laughs> really polite terms, Jen said, well, actually, there's currently the sitting president of Chile is a woman, the sitting president of Brazil is a woman, the sitting president of Argentina is a woman. So, how did you, you know, react, Jennifer? How, how did you react? Yeah, they'll learn that the United States is behind the times. What, how did you react to the student? I mean, I think it's a great teachable moment, right? Not just for students, but cocktail parties. I mean, you can decide whether this is fun cocktail party talk or not, but I think it's a great teachable moment. You know, Mexico right now has 50% women in Congress. The Mexican constitution requires that there be 50% women in Congress. And I think the United States has all of these ideas about countries that we might consider to be lesser than or worse off than us or less advanced than us. And it's a great teachable moment that on, on some metrics, the US is actually quite behind the times when it thinks about gender, gender equality, um, the inclusion of women. So I know we'll get into this more as the show goes on, but I just try to use those as moments to change the change people's view of the world right you know actually you might have these ideas about mexico but they're wrong or you might have these ideas about latin america but they're wrong how many countries have had uh female identifying executives prior to the united states 50 60 how many countries do we know uh so that's a great question um the actual number i can tell you that there have been women executives in every world region before the united states Right. So we've seen them in Asia Pacific. We've seen them in South Asia. We've seen them in Europe. We've seen them in Latin America. I mean, in the past 15 years in Latin America, there's been five women presidents. Right. And these were women presidents that were elected in their own right from political parties. They weren't women that sort of inherited the presidency because their husband died. Right. So Panama, Chile, Argentina, Brazil, Costa Rica, all in the past um, 20 years have had women presidents and they've been reelected as well. What spurred, I'm, I now, it gave me time to look up on CNN politics and a very quick count, looks like it's about 50 uh, early on Sri Lanka, India, and Israel, and more recently, uh, more recently, Denmark, Namibia, Thailand, and more. Uh, Jennifer, starting with you, what prompted the new constitution? What was the, uh, that doesn't happen all the time. I had a chance to travel to Liberia and meet with their, with representatives of their Supreme Court and representatives of their legislature when they were working on an updated yeah. constitution. Their constitution is modeled after the United States and then changed in a way that essentially meant that the ruling party could overrule any element of the constitution that it so chose. It was a fascinating uh, exercise. I can understand even as an academic or as a writer or viewer of things, it's fascinating, but a lot at stake for human beings. So uh, what, what were the political conditions that led to the rethinking of the Chilean constitution? 
Yeah, so what grabbed our attention, right, the examples that you just mentioned, was that most countries rewrite their constitutions when they're exiting from some kind of conflict, often a civil war, or they're having a regime change, right? So an authoritarian government is departing and leaving, and so you have to create the edifice for a new democracy. What drew our attention to Chile was that Chile is not exiting from a civil war. It already transitioned from a dictatorship in 19, 1989, 1990, and so it's unusual that countries that are sort of chugging along democratically make the decision to write a new constitution without yeah. being pushed by a major outside force. Yeah. There are some examples of other countries doing it, but not many. Um, so there was a, I'll let Peter pick up on the, the aspects of sort of what prompted it, but how I entered into this, this story um, was also thinking about as now that Chile is writing its new constitution, the law that is going to structure who runs to be a member of that constitutional convention, we call them delegates to the constitutional convention, that law is going to require that 50% of those candidates be women. So there's a gender quota for the candidates for the constitutional convention. And moreover, and this is actually very radical, I'm not aware of any country in the world that has done this with their gender quota, if 50% of those women candidates don't win, the law actually provides for votes to be redistributed such that the Constitutional Convention will seat 50% women delegates. So there have been constitutional conventions before, Tunisia's a great one, that had uh, parity, gender parity for the candidates, but Chile will become the first in the world to sit a constitutional convention with half men and half women, and we think that's gonna affect the kind of document they will produce. But before we go there, Peter, do you wanna pick up with how, we, how Chile got to this point? Yeah, I don't think I don't think it's possible to understand how we got to this point in Chile without fast going back a little bit in history to look at how we got to where we are today, and it's fundamentally because of I mean the 1980 Constitution, and if we look at the level of polarization and division that exists in our country and other countries today, and we think about Chile in the 1970s, it was an extraordinarily polarized country, and. There's a lot of work that's being produced right now on how democracies die because of all the crisis of representation that are going around the world right now. But Chile is a classic case of how democracies die, given the polarization of the country and the fact that each side of the equation saw the other side as completely illegitimate. Sound familiar? Um, and so in this sense, uh, Chile is deeply polarized. Um, uh, the, the first democratically elected Marxist leader in the world is elected in 1973, and then, uh, and, and so, I'm sorry, 1970, and then the level of polarization and violence reaches such a state in 1973 that the Salvador Allende government is violently overthrown in a military coup with bombing the presidential palace in central Santiago, which is really quite hard to believe. The regime that comes to power says it's only coming to power just to stay for a little while, but really sets down to fundamentally reshape the character of Chilean politics, society, and economy in the, in the person of Augusto Pinochet. And in doing so, in order to extend his rule into the years that are coming, and actually he thought he was going to win a constitutional plebiscite in 1988, which he didn't, he writes a constitution that has fundamental limits on the power of the left, that has powerful checks on democracy. And without getting into the particulars of the Constitution, my point, I, the, the way we got to where we, is, we, we are today, is when I talk to my students and I say, look, the Constitution written by a dictator is still governing Chile this many years later, and they haven't changed it. 
it's almost they're, they're, they're incredulous, right? Because the, the document in the first place is completely illegitimate, but there never was the audacity or the ability of elites that came after that constitution to be able to change it. I mean, th there was really some really powerful limits on, on changing the constitution, but at the same time, elites really didn't, didn't, um, didn't sort of marshal the support in order to fundamentally rewrite the constitution, which we're seeing now. And the reason that I say that these two things are related is because I really do think the powerful limits on representation embedded in the 1980 constitution and making property rights sacred, protecting capitalism, produce such social, such social unrest in the country because of the levels of inequality that this explosion that we saw last October really has roots that are much, much deeper than a simple increase in transport prices, which is the way the, the, the press sort of covered it. You know, the government raised, tra raised transport prices and then the country exploded. No, we're not talking about that. We're talking about 30 years of injustice under a system that Chile's political elites were either unwilling or unable to reform. You said three things that I heard. You said specific limits to the left. You said uh, limits to representation. And I think you also said, I know you said uh, making property rights sacred. Let's take some of those. Let's take each of those in turn. When you say limits on the left, what do you mean? You mean reducing unionization? Uh, what were the what were the specific limits? Was it banning certain political parties or speech? How did that play out? At the beginning, both of those things took place. You know, first particular parties were banned. The Socialist Party was banned in, immediately after the transition to democracy um, in the Constitution, right? But again, it reformed, took a different name and ran anyway. Um, but the trade unions were completely crushed under the dictatorship, right? So their power of organization and, and trade unionism was particularly strong in Chile, stronger than almost any other country in Latin America, maybe with the exception of Argentina. Um, but the labor sector was essentially crushed. Now, other limits on the left, though, were constitutional. I don't want to go into details because this is a, a, an incredibly complex system. Some details are cool. I mean, like like this, it, the, the, it's not called democracy shallow. It's called democracy <laughs> nerd, right? Like so, I, any well, detail I'm, you think is edifying, we'll take. Okay, well, I'll see if I'll, I'll see if I can explain this without using any kind of graphics. <laughs> All right. Essentially, you can do it. Essentially, the 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 election system that was imposed by the Constitution. The Pinochet Constitution. The Pinochet Constitution provides that there's that there's two members in each district, right? So each coalition nominates two, a slate of two different candidates, right? But in order for a coalition to win both the seats in a district, it has to double the vote of the competing coalition. So what this effectively does mathematically is allows the, the, uh, the right, which, which constitutes about 30% of Chile, to win 50% of the legislative seats with only 30% of the vote. Right. right? So the election system was basically designed to make sure that it would be very difficult. So you have a coalition on the left, you have a coalition on the right. It was designed to make sure that it would be very difficult for the left or the right to win both of the district seats. Right, so essentially, then every district gets a representative from the left and the right Got it. in Congress. Right, Got so it. you constrain the electoral power of the left. 
Yeah, well, Peter? this is this, so. This is, is interesting, though, because one of the topics we have covered is, in fact, multi-member districts. And the argument of people who promote multi-member districts is not that it will limit the power of the left. Right. Their, their idea is it will unlock democracy and make sure everybody gets representation. Was there something about the multi-member district uh, regime in Chile that made it particularly anti-left, or is it potentially a critique? on multi-member districts generally. And I say this as somebody who is dancing with the idea of multi-member districts. Yeah. No, it's really it's really about, you can have multi-member districts, but then you have to have rules for how those seats are apportioned, right? So for Chile, it wasn't that it had the multi-member district, it was that the rules for how those seats how those seats were apportioned made it difficult, right, for one party to with a certain number of the votes to capture both of those seats. Go ahead, Peter. Yeah, and there's a huge, huge difference between multi-member seats or multi-member districts that have two as opposed to five or eight, right? Yeah. Two, you know, that, that competitive dynamic, it, it's really a mathematical equation. With that competitive dynamic of two, a coalition that garners 30% of the vote can effectively get 50% of the seat. But if you up that to three, right. the, the, the threshold for representation drops significantly. If you up it to four or five or six or seven or eight, or like Israel that has one national uh, legislative district of over 100 people, the threshold for representation is incredibly low, very, very low. So in Chile, what's key is the two-member district system. And in my own research, um, in terms of the origins of the, the system called the binomial legislative system, we found that the regime studied every possible combination of district size, ran simulations, I have the simulations, ran simulations. A guy who helped design the system and later became disgruntled with it, he gave me these simulations and said, if anyone asks you, these came over the transom. I, you know, <laughs> don't, you know, I'm, you can't be telling me, telling people where they came from. And it shows that they tested every possibility in order to engineer an electoral system that would benefit the right the most. And that's what they did. You also said property rights sacred. Say more about that. What uh, meaning, meaning uh, taking away takings, meaning you couldn't institute a property tax? What were the ways that, uh, meaning that you could only vote if you owned a property, as was true in the United States uh, and Greece? Uh, what, uh, what elements particularly made property rights sacred? Well, that, that's a two-part question, really. And the first part comes with the constitutional structure itself still. Because the limitations, you have to understand that politics and economics in Chile are fundamentally tied together. So the political class, the political elite, is also the economic elite. And they want, they're, they're going to shield themselves from any threat by the left or any threat from the state. So in this sense, other aspects of the Constitution protected the economic elite. For example, it wasn't just this election system that favored the right. There also was nine senators appointed by bodies associated with the military, which prevented the, the, um, the opposition coalition from passing any legislation, from changing these things in Chile. In addition to that, not only were there nine appointed senators that gave a, a majority to the right, there was really high quorums for the reform of any kind of politics and also for the reform of the Constitution that could change these, these protections for the elite. So when, when I look at Chile, it's really a, a constitutional straitjacket that 
that prevents any sort of political change. And this explosion we've seen is because there's a deep, deep demand for those kinds of changes. And the second part of the question has to do concretely with what Chilean legislation says about the sanctity of property rights. But there's also a constitutional tribunal that can decide the constitutionality of law at any point during the legislative process, mm -hmm. before a law is passed, not like in the United States, even before a law is passed. So that body would veto any legislation that, that threatened property rights in Chile or that was too redistributive. So one thing we should fill in too is that so that you know we're describing the Pinochet era constitution, right? That basically Chilean democracy on the return inherited, and so Chile recognized that this constitution had produced a deeply unrepresentative system, right? There was frustration with voters, with the unrepresentative nature of Chilean elites. You know, the same folks are in, are elected all the time. So over 2015 and 2016, Chile did do a set of constitutional reforms. So they scrapped this old binomial electoral system that Peter just described. They put in place um, what's called a proportional representation system. So multi-member districts, but with larger seat sizes and allocated in a different way. Um, and the 2017 and in this process, they also introduced a 40% gender quota for women candidates. So the 2017 congressional elections were held using this new election system, right? The first time this new election system was used since 1990. Um, the problem is, as Peter and I have talked about in the work we've done on this, it was too little too late because, of course, you elect that you have a new election system. It's supposed to be more representative. There's larger districts. New parties enter the system. Um, only about 11 percent of incumbents are reelected because there's more seats. There's more parties. There's more opportunities. So that happens in 2017. But then still. Now, the pandemic has made me lose count of years. Still in 2019. Right. The protests start that over the increased transit fares that bring all of these people to the streets and that eventually lead to the decision to call a constitutional convention that we're talking about now. So even when Chile tried to reform starting about five years ago now, it was too little too late, right? It didn't do enough to sort of quell the unrest and the frustration. Because let's remember the privatized educational system, yeah. the privatized healthcare system, the privatized um, social security system, none of that had been reformed. I mean, uh, and, and, and and that's what this is really about. Right. It's not about transport. It's about injustice in every aspect of the provision of social policy in the country. And people were fed up with it, simply fed up with it because there was injustice everywhere you looked, right? And so the connection here, one of the connections is interesting, is what's happening in Chile, what's happening in Latin America, but also what is happening in global politics and what's happening in the United States. That yeah. you, as you... As you pointed out, the Chilean Constitution had been heralded by Milton Freeman, Friedman mm -hmm. as creating sort of a Chicago school paradise and being kind of a model. In fact, we've seen protesters here in the United States with T-shirts that said Pinochet was right. And that and the idea that the, the sort of the Randian movement uh, could create a laboratory in Latin America where they could try out their uh, sort of fundamental sort of. Uh, uh, pro-market fundamentalist ideas and then see how it played out. And it wouldn't it wouldn't have to impact Milton Friedman living in Chicago, but it would impact people living in Chile. That's a big part of the backdrop here. Right. I mean, these, this was a place where white people were experimenting uh, and by infecting or is it, maybe that's an overstatement. To what degree explain the linkage between uh, what was happening to Chile as well as what was happening within Chile? Peter, why um, don't you start? Okay, yeah, I mean, I mean, I think that's right. I mean, 
the, the, there's very, very strong ties between the University of Chicago Economics Department and the Catholic University of Chile Economic Department that in collusion together really were wringing their hands and saying, look, we've got this opportunity to have this free market experiment. We can create the capitalist paradise that we know would work if somebody would let it work, right? There's been too much, the, the left's preventing that from happening. So as we crush the, the left, as we kidnap the left, as we torture the left, as we execute the left, we can at the same time, we're transforming political society. And with this economic model, we can transform economic society. And so Chile becomes the most capitalist country in the world. Almost no tariffs, the state reduced um, um, su subsidies to, to individuals, uh, completely eliminated. And sorry, my lights go off here if I don't move. <laughs> um, and, and so on, but, and, and of course what happens when this, this economic model is instituted is a dramatic retraction in the size of, of Chilean economy, massive unemployment, um, uh, businesses folding left and right. And so people on the right that talk about the so-called Pinochet miracle, when they look at all that growth, they don't realize that the economy actually contracted by 40% hmm. before he initiated that growth. And the most spectacular growth came when governance, governments of the center left that followed him came into power and, and tweaked some of these policies that were, 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 were so incredibly market driven. So this myth of the Pinochet miracle is just that it's a myth. It's Jennifer, also a miracle. Oh, go ahead. No, I was gonna. I was gonna ask you probably what you were about to say. I was gonna say more, Jennifer. Say more. No, and I was. And, and the you know the point that, and I've really learned a lot of this from working with Peter was, of course, those benefits accrue to a certain portion of people, right? So the you know the pie might be getting bigger, but the same people are getting larger shares of the pie every time, right? Um, and Chile had some of the weakest welfare policies in Latin America. So a lot of Latin American governments, you know, that benefited from the commodities boom, especially in the 1990s and the 2000s, really invested heavily in social programs to lift the well-being of the poor. Chile's have always been among the weaker in the region. So you also had low state investment in public services, while the state also protected the capitalist economy. And so, you know, Peter always talks about how, and this is true, I've been to Santiago, you know, parts of Santiago look like downtown Sweden, downtown Stockholm, and parts of Santiago um, don't look like that. They look like the opposite of that, right? And so you have extreme income inequality. And so yes, the protests that led to the constitutional reform started over transit fares. They weren't just about transit fares. They were all about these other kinds of economic and social injustices. But the transit fare hike itself you know, hiked public transit fares to the point that somebody would be spending about 15% of their daily wages just to ride the subway to or from work. And if you're poor, that is quite a lot of your daily wages, right? Just to get to and from your job. So even that alone really sort of captured the out of touch nature of the political leadership with what a lot of people in Chile were facing, which was an economic struggle to survive. So that transit fare hike really tapped into that deep rooted sense of injustice because of the extreme levels of economic inequality. And then also the tone deaf nature of the elite. So when the protests start erupting and people are saying this is unjust to have these, these transport fees increase, the Santiago Metro operates on a system where at different times, when, when there's high volume, it's more expensive, and when there's low volume, it's less expensive. The Minister of Transport actually came out in a country 
where poor people are commuting for an hour and a half to get to their jobs because they have to get to the rich part of Santiago to work as gardeners, uh, maids, all that sort of stuff. In that country, he they're already spending an hour and a half on their commute. He said, well, you know, they just need to get up a little earlier to take advantage of the, cheap, the, the cheaper fares. That really crystallized how tone deaf the Piñera government was to the lives of everyday Chileans. Peter, I want to get some more historical context on the 1980 Constitution. You said a bunch about it, but say more about uh, the context when it was written and its primary authors. You know, we talked about Chicago School. You talked about the Catholic University. Uh, any other any other foreign influence? What what helped make that Constitution happen? Because it was uh, is it, a radical document, right? It is it is not it was not a tweak. It was not merely it was not merely some deal with the World Trade Organization to for some austerity measures to make sure that longtime debts get paid back and that and that inflation doesn't get exacerbated, right? It it wasn't just stopping nationalization of oil or rubber in Liberia, right? I mean, this was this was sort of a radical document. Give us more context and background on how that happened. Well, really, I think um, to understand the whole process of the drafting of the 1980 Constitution, we need to understand the broader goal of the Pinochet dictatorship. And that was to fundamentally reshape every aspect of Chilean society. So the economic model, its twin is the 1980 Constitution. That's the political version of that extreme capitalism. And what do I mean by that? It really, constitutions are supposed to be drafted by societies to protect minorities and prevent capricious majorities of running over those minorities, right? This constitution was drafted by 12 people, only two of whom were women. And actually when Jen and I did research on this, we were surprised that they even had two women here, right? And it was most influenced by a, a lawyer trained at the Catholic University, again, the, the, the university closest to the University of Chicago, named Jaime Guzman, a radical Catholic. He was um, interested in designing a, a system where an authoritarian state and a market capitalist system could exist together. So in this sense, go, going forward, he knew that a, you know, uh, a permanent authoritarian regime was probably untenable, especially in the face of the uh, of, of international markets who would not do business in Chile by this time, that he had to come up with some model to allow authoritarian aspects of the system to persist into the democratic era. And that's fundamentally what this constitution was trying to do. In terms of international influence, I wouldn't play it up too much because it's important to remember the reaction against uh, expansive American foreign policy following the Vietnam War. So during this period, Jimmy Carter is president and completely changes the orientation towards Latin America um, that the United States has. So this was really a domestically driven process, always keeping in mind that wider economic forces in the world are what's driving this as well. I mean, remember we have the, the Thatcher revolution, the Reagan revolution, Chile actually predates that, right? Um, as, as one of the first deeply neoliberal economies. And then again, the strong limits embedded in the Constitution that make it almost impossible to reform is why we see it coming up to where we have it today. So, Jennifer, say more about how the Constitution exacerbated sort of oligarchy and correct my word if that is an overstated uh, word. 
No, I mean, so one of the things that this electoral system did, right, we've talked about the way it sort of constrained the power of the left. There were also um, larger districts with smaller number of seats overall. So there was a limited amount of seats in the Chilean Congress that were available for election. So for instance, Peter and I have, have been looking, we have the data of everyone who ran for public office in Chile um, since the return to democracy in 1990. So these would be municipal councilors, um, mayors who were directly elected starting in 2004, and then the Senate and, and the Chamber of Deputies, the two chambers of Congress since 1989. It is astonishing when you look through these lists of about 30,000 names, how much the same surnames are repeating. And the surnames in Chile are fairly distinctive um, because of the different um, immigration patterns to Chile over the course of you know, Chile's life as a nation. So it's not just that we're seeing a lot of Smiths repeating and these Smiths might not actually be related to each other. You know, We're seeing a lot of repetition of very, very distinctive surnames. So it's the same when we talk about this political economic elite, You know, they're getting elected over and over and over again. They're rotating among office. There really isn't um, a lot of efforts until these reforms in 2015 and 2016 to open up the political opportunity structure to new actors and to new voices, right? So Peter often talks in his research about this insular political class, right? That it's just the same folks. They're sort of running the country and they're protected from having to make a lot of changes. Um, and it's really astonishing when you look at the surnames, it sort of jumps out at you very, very clearly. And even for some of the work we were doing, um, I as sort of the coming in as the gender and diversity expert and the non-Chilean expert would be like, well, like this combination of surnames is a little different. Are we sure that they're the, you know, maybe they're actually two different people. And then Peter might say, yes, they're two different people, but they're brothers. Or yeah, you know, yes, that's, but that's actually the uncle and, and the nephew. Um, and flipping ahead, right, to the vote to, to vote for a new constitutional, um, to a new constitution, to vote for the constitutional convention, you know, the yes vote won everywhere except in the three wealthiest districts in Santiago. Those three wealthiest districts in Santiago are the places with the, where the people with those surnames live, right? Those are the Stockholm parts of Santiago. So you really, again, see this divide between those with power and those without, and the concentration of political and economic power among a certain set of people. How does wealth disparity compare in Chile to other countries, you name it. Like if I'm if I'm looking at Richard Wilkinson's uh, distribution of income uh, difference, or maybe even something that I would like even more, because most money isn't based on what somebody makes in a year. Most money is based on what is owned for more than a year. Uh, but if you were going to try to do that on a scatter plot of wealth distribution, where would Chile rank compared to other places? It, it depends on the year you do it. Like you know, the standard measure of inequality is the Gini coefficient, which is zero to a hundred, and um, the higher the coefficient, the more the less equal the country. Chile regularly has, in, in, in the past decade, at times been number one in Latin America, right? Africa is the poorest continent, but Latin America is the least equal continent. There's an important difference there, right? And the way that goods, uh, the, the way that resources are distributed. So Chile regularly ranks among the countries with the highest Gini coefficient. Um, but I also wanted to just circle back to what Jen said about Stockholm. And so there was a study that, that came out and these, these, this particular group of scholars um, analyzed the, um, the um, uh, the, 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 Peter, you're talking about the Gini coefficient or the life no, expectancy? No, I'm talking about the, um, it, it's, it's a measure of uh, standard of living. The, okay. 
anyway, anyway. Like a consumer price index. GDP? No, no, no. Um, I know you've told me about this study. So it was sort of- Right, right, right. I just can't think of the name. Like anyway. life chances and opportunities, right? Right. Anyway, it measures, it's a basket. It measures income, education, gender equity, um, 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 uh, access to water. It's a whole series of- uh, uh, Human uh, Development measures. Index? It was something that? like that. The human development index. Thank you. That's what I was looking for, right? And this study found that the wealthiest comuna in Santiago, which is Vitacura, had a human development index of Sweden, right? And the poorest had a human development index of Equatorial Guinea. And they're seven miles apart. So it's not just inequality. It's the fact that every day this inequality is slamming people smack dab in the face in the same city, right? And I would add the sense that it's very difficult so to get out of that situation, right? Because of course, one of the questions is always what drives the kind of protests that we're talking about in, in Chile or other places, right? Is it absolute inequality? Right, so we're talking about some absolute differences, or is it relative inequality? So as Peter said, when you see that the have mores have more, and you feel even worse about the fact that you're a have not. And so I think in Chile, right, it's the absolute inequality combined with the sense that if you are among the have nots, the opportunities for you to quote unquote, pull yourself up by your bootstraps to become a have more are basically missing right because there's a low social safety net because it's very difficult to get into a good university right and so a lot of absolute inequality can maybe be ameliorated from a policy perspective if there's an opportunity for the have-nots to change their situation but when the have-nots see that they can't change their situation by just working harder getting up earlier to capture those transit you know capture that early fare then you get the sort of the perfect storm for the kind of protests that rocked chile over the past year and I want to just add to what Jen said, because she and I, in our work together, have referred to, and other people, it's not just original to us, but but we refer often to the two Chiles. I mean, there's two different Chiles, because there's geographic segregation, right? There are children that grow up in this incredibly wealthy environment, private schools located right there, um, private health care located right there. There are universities are up there in that neighborhood. And they talk of these kids that never set foot in central Santiago, have never been on the metro. And the only time they may go through the city is when they're on their way to the airport to go on vacations in Europe, right? They don't see the lives of the people that are in this poorer area of Santiago ever. And the, the lives that these two sets of people are living are so incredibly different that it's stark the way it just slaps you in the face, right? In, in, in terms of living in a, like, you know, a fourth world country versus living in a place that looks like Northern Europe. There have been two proposals, at least, to rewrite the Constitution. And there were two methods, as I understand it, at least. You can correct my misconceptions. One was a process that was driven by where the Constitutional Convention would be comprised by everyday citizens. The other was what, maybe you said this, comprised half of half mm -hmm. of uh, unelected people and half by the Chilean Congress. And, and what was adopted was the option one, but instead of even just saying everyday citizens, we said, and it's going to be half, uh, half men, half women. Do I have that right? 
Yeah, that's more or less right. So, you know, as the protests sort of rocked Chile, they had to, they made a decision to call this referendum. And so the referendum basically had two questions, right? Do you want a new constitution or not? And if you want a new constitution, that there were two choices about how it could be written. So it could either be a convention that was what was called a convention mixed, a mixed convention. And the idea was that half of those delegates would be elected, so they'd be these kinds of everyday citizens, and half of those delegates would be members of Congress. And then the constitutional convention option, the full constitutional convention option, was 100% of the delegates would be chosen by popular election. And that is the one that won, was the full citizens option. So what Chile is doing now is they're going to have elections, so people are going to be able to declare themselves as candidates to become delegates of the constitutional convention. So we talk about this in our work and in the media as these can kind of be everyday citizens, but we're we're reducing the complexity a little bit because yes, they can be everyday citizens, but you're still going to have to run for that position. So there's still some advantage given to political parties because political parties are gonna put up the candidates to be the delegates. And so then there's some advantage given to people who have resources. So it's not necessarily the case, even though we're calling it a citizens constitutional convention, that you know a hairdresser or a bus driver or a waitress is going to be able to successfully run to be one of those delegates. The parties still have an advantage. So sitting members of Congress cannot run, but nothing stops, say, a former member of Congress from running. I, I, actually, 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 sitting members of Congress can run. If they resign. If they resign. If yeah. they resign, yeah. exactly. So They, the they can either be a framer of the Constitution, they can either be John Hancock and Benjamin Franklin, or they can be John Adams and, and, and somebody else. That's right. And so it's really interesting because then the only real control on trying to prevent this from being an elite process is that those who write the constitutional convention, so the, excuse me, those who write the constitution, those who are elected as delegates, is are bar, they're barred from running for office for three years after the conclusion of the process. So it's interesting that there's no control on, 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 on the current position you have affecting you running. There's just a control on if you run and win and do it, then there's a temporary ban on you running again for Congress or another elected position. So how does bus driver Augustine, uh, bus driver Vicente, uh, bus driver Maria participate in this? Do, are they going to end up whether, you know, de facto versus de jure, right? Will they will they be engaged in this process or will it mostly be the people who are already in on the joke? Well, what I'm looking, what I'm interested in and what Peter, Peter and I are obviously going to be paying attention to who runs, right? And so I think that you are going to have a, a group of, of sort of semi-professional politicians, people who have held elected office before, um, run. But I think, you know, Chile does have a very large sort of intelligentsia class, right? There's a lot of commentators, journalists, uh, professors, um, people who head important nonprofit and philanthropic organizations. And I'm quite keen to see whether those folks run. Right now, if those folks run and they actually have important ties to civil society organizations that represent the bus drivers, the waitresses, the students, right, the feminist movement, then you'll get that participation and you'll get that representation if they're sort of leaders or people who can be leaders for these voices run and enter. But if it just turns out to be these last names that we're used to seeing, then I think the possibilities for that kind of representation are going to be lower, right? So what, what Chilean civil society needs to be doing right now um, with the organizations they have, with the organizations that are being formed out of the protests is really think who are they gonna put up 
where can these folks get the nominations from the political parties? Where can they run and where can they win so they can represent these more diverse constituents when that delegate, when that constitutional convention sits? And, and what's heartening to me about this process as well, that I think that can also make it more representative of the Marias and the Wands, is the, the idea that it is, that there is gender parity involved right. in this. And there are reserved seats for indigenous groups that have been totally left out of the national dialogue in Chile, had no part in drafting any of the country's institutions, e either as foundational institutions or as contemporary ones. So in this sense, this to me, I think is gonna guarantee that some of the, that there's gonna be some defense for everyday Chileans built into yeah. this constitutional process. Why not a lottery? <laughs> I mean, yeah. you, you laugh, but that's I'm now I'm now bought in. Yeah. OK, I'm now a sortition radical. I now think that we should be having more citizen assemblies that make more decisions. And that and this seems it's like very Athenian of you. Exactly. It, it, it feels it feels like this is a classic example of where I mean, at least and the folks who work on sortition who work by, you know, work on governing by lot. What they try to do, the way they try to rig it, is to rig it so that it is representative of yeah. the body politic. It was representative of, in this case, Chile. So you'd have, you know, bus driver Maria and, you know, somebody might have been former in Congress. But when you looked at the overall body, it was reflective of the uh, reflective of the country. Obviously, that's not how they're doing it. Are there any other mechanisms of civil society where it could resemble that? So, in fact, the decision making body reflects the politic. You know, I mean, organizations could do it, right? I mean, so, you know, I was going to talk a little bit about the role of the, you know, the feminist movement in Chile and the way the, the protests over the last year, I mean, the feminist movement played an enormous role in these protests. Um, violence against women and gender inequality were part of what the protests, you know, became about. Um, and so I, I, you know, thinking about who was going to run, I mean, the feminist movement played a huge role in making sure that election law had the gender parity mechanisms for the Constitutional Convention. So I won't name names, but I would suspect that some of those leaders of the feminist movement that have been deeply involved in getting Chile to this point, you know, themselves are going to be thinking about a run for the Constitutional Convention. So, you know, organizations could do it. Um, you know, the student, the student union could draw their candidate for by lot, right? I mean, I think that's the way it would happen in Chile. I can't imagine Chilean society, Chilean elites, given their elitist tendencies, ever agreeing to a third option that was going to be by lottery. Um, um, but certainly the organizations they're going to think think about putting forward candidates, you know, could think a little bit more creatively. About Except that it's a collective candidate. action problem because each group is going to pick the, if everybody did that, that'd be cool. But if the groups <laughs> that do it, yeah. right, pick the person who's most likely to win and the other people do it by lottery, then maybe all these people win. So they're going to end up doing the same thing that any, I would assume, the same yeah. thing that any sort of political strategist imagines doing, which is you put up the candidate who can win and you end up getting, I don't know, exactly. uh, President Tyler. Because the groups, the groups that would do it would also probably be the groups that are more on the left, right? And so then you'd have a real difference between the representatives that are coming. Yeah, from you'd the have fa right? famous, you'd have famous military leaders, you know, <laughs> Tippecanoe and Tyler too, or whatever. <laughs> and then you'd have, you know, and then you'd have like some uh, random activists who people didn't know, and the random activists who didn't know who might be a wonderful, wonderful person might not win. This is why I like sortition. Well, you were going to say something, like, Peter. This is like where the elitist in me is going to come out. You guys. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's have it out, Peter. You guys can call me a fascist if you want at any point. My friends have called me a fascist for saying this, but there's really, we need to be cautious, right? We need to be cautious because as I said, as I said right at the beginning, constitutions are frameworks, right? Constitutions are frameworks to protect minorities from majorities. And if you have a majority set on a particular fair goal, point. 
a particular constitutional goal, the rights of minorities can completely be just just. And I'm not a sortition fundamentalist. And in fact, I welcome this conversation. And this is the window, right? This conversation about Chile, it's also about democracy. And that and that where where are citizens best and in what way are citizens best able to govern themselves? How do you build a government for the people of the people and by the people? That to me is the fundamental question that we have to wrestle with and not just assume that buying ads is going to do it for us. Uh, and and I do think that the ta- there, there is a difference between a citizen assembly and what water fees ought to be and a citizen assembly that is, what the fundamental structure of the Constitution ought to be, right? I mean, at, at some point you might hire one person or ask one person to write a draft of the Declaration of Independence, and then you can sort of push back on it rather than trying to write that document in committee. I think it, it's a fascinating question. What, say more about the power dynamics, the decision-making dynamics that are leading up to this. Who is really digging in and seeming to have an impact on how this is going to shape up? What should be people? What should people be watching for? Peter, first you. Look, again, as I said the, the, this is a very, very serious process. And what I've been saying all along is a constitution is not a pinata, right? It doesn't have something for everybody in it. It's not giving out the candy, giving out the treats. Again, call me a fascist, call me conservative, but it's not giving out the treats. I'm fine, you know, I'm fine with a constitution saying healthcare is a human right, but I'm not fine with a constitution that said healthcare shall be administered by the state. In a lot of the debate, even though I think it should be, right, in a lot of the debate that I've been hearing, people are treating this process as a pinata, like something for everybody, the goodies. No, what we have to do is figure out a framework that will allow more progressive social social policy to be instituted legislatively, because constitutions are not political documents, they're frameworks, and that's the way we need to look at it. On the other side, in terms of the power dynamics, what we need to watch is every aspect of the new constitution needs to be approved by two thirds of that constituent assembly. Now, presumably, you know, 20% of the people voted against this constitution, I mean, against this process, right? Um, When we finally see what that constitutional convention looks like, we might have a better idea of who the potential veto players are and whether a more progressive document can be written with avoiding the dangers of capricious populism of a majority, right? So to me, this process is walking a balance. And I'm trying to be very uh, sort of optimistic that we're not gonna end up with a Hugo Chavez style constitution in Chile because Chile is a different country. But at the same time, it needs to strike that balance between having progressive social policy without giving away the entire store because that will be very detrimental to Chilean, the Chilean economy and to Chilean poor people in the end. And I keep telling Peter to stop clutching his pearls about this, and I'll tell you why. So, Peter, the, stop yeah. clutching your fascist pearls. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I mean, so first of all, I think, you know, the two thirds quorum for any decision made by the Constitutional Convention is itself a check on radicalism from the left or the right. And so in some ways it feels very Chilean because we started this whole conversation, right, about the way Chile designs its institutional rules to sort of prevent, um, to sort of pull towards the center, right, and prevent radicalism. And it designs its institutional rules to make dramatic changes extremely hard. So first of all, you've got that two-thirds quorum, so it's going to be really hard. I think the second thing is go back to where have we seen constitutional conventions recently and what have those documents looked like, right? Oh, yeah, give us examples. 
Exactly. So we talk about, you know, constitutional conventions being written in sort of peacetime to be pretty rare. Two recent examples do come from Latin America. So Bolivia and Ecuador wrote their constitutions and rewrote their constitutions in 2009. And in Bolivia's case, right, it was because um, it, then Evo Morales's indigenous party, which was a very left socialist style party, came to power. So you would expect that that constitution, right, here's a best case scenario for, as Peter says, a constitution that gives away the store. Right, it's being written by an indigenous party in a context where indigenous peoples have suffered exclusion and genocide. Right, um, and it's an indigenous party that's explicitly left-leaning and explicitly socialist. Even that constitution didn't say Bolivians have a right to health care provided by the state. They did, however, say Bolivians have a right to health care. Bolivians have a right to clean water. Bolivians have a right to housing. So it provided a framework for a very progressive set of rights. Now. Go to Bolivia. Okay, well, we could have a whole separate conversation about Bolivia. It's not the case right now that every Bolivian is getting their health care fully funded by the state and that every Bolivian has access to clean water. But what that document did by enumerating the rights was it gave activists, policymakers, legislators, it gave them a legal reference to then try to fight for public policies, laws that would implement and realize these rights. So one of the reasons I tell Peter also to stop clutching your pearls is that even in a case that was primed to write sort of a deeply radical constitution, did enumerate a very progressive set of rights, but didn't necessarily add the kinds of financial commitments that folks like Peter and other folks in Chile are currently worried about. And then the last thing I say about this is it's also really important that we are now talking about constitutions being written by the kinds of people that didn't traditionally write them right, by indigenous peoples, by women, um, by young people, by hopefully some LGBTQ representatives. And so it's also to be expected that when those folks have a seat at the table, they're going to have different ideas of what people's rights and entitlements are. And so that in some ways, the constitutions of the far past, right, of centuries ago, they're not good reference points for us because they were written by a much narrower set of people with a much narrower set of interests and a much narrower understanding of what it meant to be a citizen. So that's my third more normative answer. Peter, what do your pearls have as to say I, about as that? I, <laughs> as I let go of my pearls, right? As I let go of my pearls. No, you do you, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the one thing that makes me let go of my pearls beyond my, my dear friend and colleague um, and co-author telling me to let go of my pearls is, <laughs> is Chilean history, right? I mean, this is a country like this is a country that put up with an authoritarian constitution between 1980 and now, right? Without just that, they respect institutions, they respect the rule of law, even when they're illegitimate institutions. Are you kidding me? If this were Argentina, that constitution would have been shredded a year after it was written. Chileans follow constitutional processes even if they're illegitimate so this tradition of respect for institutions processes legality and transparency gives me the confidence to let those pearls go a little bit more yeah i mean i'll tell you a funny story chileans are real rule followers i was in santiago in the dead of winter when there was a freak heat wave and it was 90 degrees out and so my friend and i were like oh my god like we're stripped down to our tank tops and we're walking around and everyone is still bundled up as if it were 20 degrees because it's winter 
So you dress for winter, no matter what the actual temperature outside is. So they are definitely, you know, we shouldn't re reduce to stereotypes, but they are definitely a rule following group. <laughs> Iraq and Afghanistan created new constitutions in the aftermath of war. What are other examples? We started on this, right? Other yeah. examples of democracies. Re I, I mentioned the example of Liberia. Uh, other examples of countries rewriting their constitution. What are the things we should be most concerned about, right? Most pearl clutching about if we want to, uh, uh, if we want to demolish that uh, analogy, and and which should give us some hope. I think to me, or where from way, where should we yeah. draw some pearls of wisdom? Yeah, oh, yeah. So you there know. We go. I mean, I think Tunisia is another good example, right? So Tunisia rewrote its constitution um, following the, the Arab Spring, which which provoked a transition to democracy there. 50% um, women ran for the seats in the Tunisia's constitutional convention, only about a quarter of them won. And it was, it, it did produce a much more sort of modern document with a modern set of rights um, for, for Tunisia. So I think that's one of the, the success stories. And actually women in Chile have started reaching out to women in, in Tunisia to learn about their constitution making, making process. Um, so, you know, this is also not the end of the story for Chile because whatever constitution, first, first of all, they have to elect the delegates. Then they've got to sit in the convention. Then they've got to come up with a constitution with this super majority for everything they want to put in it, this two thirds rule. Then that constitution has to go to voters in a referendum. So a lot of the conversations that we're starting to have about what the constitution might or might not say and whether or not that's good or bad for Chile, I mean, that's really going to matter because this is just the very first step, right? And so every, at every moment, there needs to be legitimacy in that process. People need to see the, the delegates as being sort of legitimate voices, right? They need to see the deliberation process as legitimate. And powerful actors are going to have incentives to start framing this process as either working or not working as framing whatever resultant document comes out as being either good or bad. And that that framing could really matter for whether when Chileans go to the polls to vote that document up or down, whether it succeeds. So I think sort of being attuned to, to where the interests lie and how people are framing those interests and what they want you to be thinking about is as important when you're developing your own views. Peter? And I just want to dovetail on what Jen said because I think it's entirely correct what she mentioned. But there's also cases where uh, societies, democratic societies, have attempted to write a constitution and it's failed. The new constitution, Iceland, comes to mind, right? That convened this process for writing a, a new constitution, and there was so there, even even in a country the size of Iceland, couldn't arrive at a consensus on what a new document should look like. So what I want to underscore is, you know, as someone who's been studying Chile for decades, I pick up a newspaper and read Chile scraps its constitution. I'm like, I clutch my pearls. And I'm like, no, it no, it did not scrap its constitution. It's starting a process the, the, of the type that Jen is talking about right here. This could, a lot of things could happen. This could fail. Like yeah. they could fail to reach consensus. There could be a standoff that pushes this off like was the case in Iceland. They could write a really bad constitution, right? This this story is just beginning and is fraught with, with I'm trying to be, remain optimistic, but is fraught with 
potential pitfalls. So there are a bunch of people in the United States. There are a bunch of pro-democracy advocates, people who you know care about the kind of stuff that you know this show cares about, that have a concern about having a constitutional convention. My dad's been in favor of constitutional convention since I was a small child. I have friends who match, roughly speaking, his politics, who have a diametrically opposed view and think it would merely entrench you know blank elements of stupidity into a longer-lasting document, and that and that. They're deeply concerned about it. So I appreciate your framing this as the beginning of the discussion. Before we end this beginning of the discussion, what are some of the provisions that you're most... There's one thing, just watching to see if anything happens at all. The other is there'll be certain provisions I could imagine that could be the things that that really join the debate. Uh, Peter, you first. Actually, Jennifer, you first. What are some of the provisions, what are some of the elements of the constitutional debate or elements of the proposed constitution that you anticipate being, you're either the most optimistic, pessimistic, or just most curious about how it might play out? Yeah, I'm really optimistic about the discussion around social rights and social groups and, and equality. You know, we talked earlier in the show about this kind of marriage between Chile's political and economic elite and the marriage between the political model and the economic model. One thing we didn't talk about was that this sort of Pinochet era, it was also part of what sustained the political and economic model was this very classic vision of a traditional family. Um, very classic vision of gender roles. I mean, the Pinochet dictatorship was sort of committed to this very classic version. Chile didn't legalize divorce until 2004. Did not, I'm going to say that again, just in case you <laughs> did not legalize divorce. So 16 years ago, you were allowed to, 17 years ago, you weren't allowed to get a divorce. You were not allowed to get, now, of course, people had all these kinds of workarounds. Right. Legally, we're still married, right? but we have, we yeah. cohabitate with someone else and. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, so I think, look, you're going to have 50% women delegates are going to be 50%. Yes, they're going to represent the ideological spectrum, but they're going to be 50%. So I think the whole conversation around these social issues, I think around LGBTQ rights, I think around women's rights, I think around uh, women's right to be free from violence, which was a huge part of the protests. Um, abortion now is legal in Chile in three circumstances. Um, but I think maybe a broader discussion about abortion, access to reproductive rights, and I would be shocked if the Constitutional Convention, I mean, maybe I could be, I could be shocked. I've been shocked before. But, you so know, you say three, three it, instances, I'm guessing, what, rape, incest, life of the mother? I mean, that's the, exactly. yeah. Exactly, those are the three instances. So you might see a broadening there, and I wouldn't say I would be shocked, but I would expect then that Chile might follow countries like Mexico and then write its gender quota law, which the gender quota law for Congress is still 40%. It's 50% for the Constitutional Convention. I, I would not be surprised if Chile then made that quota law constitutional and raised it to 50% following on cases like Mexico, Bolivia, and Ecuador. So I'm actually really excited to see um, how different marginalized social groups are, might benefit from this process, not necessarily getting you know, guaranteed handouts, which Peter is worried about, but just getting a stronger framework for their rights in a context where they've been really excluded. And Peter, your concern is that if we were going to use sort of standard kind of U.S. political frameworks, that whereas the social issues that Jennifer has some degree of optimism about, what your pessimism is that in terms of the balance between uh, human prosperity and property power, that you worry that there might be too much leaning towards property power? I don't want to put words in your mouth. Well, I'm, I'm not sure. Now, now I really sound like a fascist when you put it like that. <laughs> He's really not, I promise. No, no, I, I kind of no. meant it the opposite of that. Right. Um, no, I, I, I just really think that this has, th this is a serious, serious process, yeah. right? 
I mean, this is going to seriously affect the, the economic lives of people from the top to the bottom of the social scale in Chile. And as someone who studied Chile a long time, as someone who loves Chile, um, uh, and, and, and knows something about the history, like the, the, the great irony of the breakdown of 1973 that bef was before it, that Chile was held up as one of the longest standing democracies in the hemisphere, right? With very few interruptions, transparency, legality, free and fair elections. I say this and people are like, well, wait a second, Peter, come on. You know, some of the poor people couldn't vote. And I just say, well, look at the United States in 1960, like, right? We're talking about aspirational democracy. And if we're gonna compare them Chile stands up very well to the United States during this period. And I appreciate the context. And I want to talk about, you said, well, this is just the beginning. So let's just, okay, this is just the beginning. When you think about provisions, and maybe, Jennifer, I'll go back to you. You're, you were optimistic about, well, there might be advancements in a woman's right to choose. There might be advancements in recognition of, of LGBTQ rights, et cetera. Uh, what are you more pessimistic about or just more you watchful know, about? So I think a good example is, is what happened last week, right? So we've mentioned a few times that the Constitutional Convention will also have reserved seats for Indigenous peoples. The precise mechanism there, how many reserved seats, meaning how many seats in the convention will be set aside for Indigenous yeah. peoples, Congress is actually still debating that. So while the mechanisms for how they're going to get to gender parity are clear, Congress is still debating how many reserved seats for Indigenous peoples. And the leader of one of Chile's most conservative parties, or one of the leaders of the party, a woman, was in the Chilean media last week saying, well, if we're going to have reserved seats for indigenous peoples, we should have reserved seats for Catholics because we're an oppressed group as well. Catholics are not an oppressed group in Chile. So I think for all the optimism about the possibility for social change, what you still see is that some of these more conservative interests um, are very sort of themselves afraid and skeptical about giving too much of the constitutional convention away to these underrepresented groups like indigenous peoples and that they're retrenching right i mean they're going to retrench in their position I mean, the idea that you would have reserved seats for catholics and it can in a country where catholics have basically made policy for 30 years let's go back to divorce wasn't legal until 2004 you know from the perspective of reserved seats or for marginalized groups this is sort of a bananas idea, but I think it does also give you a sense of what the opposition is and what these more marginalized groups are up against, right? And so that opposition is also going to be very powerful. Peter, any other provisions or specific dynamics that you think we ought to be watching for before we wrap? Yeah, I think what's important, uh, where I was going with the idea of Chile of this long, uh, yeah. this is longstanding democracy is, you know, just because like the Pinochet Constitution didn't have elements of Chilean constitutional history embedded within it that are positive, right? So we don't throw out the entire Constitution. What you keep is what was good about the Chilean Constitution and the Chilean constitutional tradition. Guarantees of basic human rights, laws related to free expression, guarantees against corruption to enhance transparency, independent oversight agencies like the, the, the Controller General of the Republic, all things that made Chilean democracy what it was, the, 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 the good things about Chilean democracies. But what you gotta change is what Pinochet introduced into that constitution. So take out some of the neoliberal aspects of the constitution related to property and property rights. Water is privatized in Chile. It's the only country in the world where it is, right? Strengthen the social and cultural rights of all Chileans, of indigenous population, LGBTQ, gender, recognize Chile as a multi-ethnic country. 
And nobody's talked here about institutions. Like, get rid of the hyper-presidentialism that Chile has. I mean, Chile has a much stronger president than the United States, one of the strongest presidents in the world. Give more power to the legislature, which gives more power to the people. Abolish the high forums that I talked about. Put limits on the constitutional tribunal. Mechanisms for wider citizen participation. And then finally, some sort of constitutional escape valve. What am I talking about? Back in 1973, when this all went down, what it was was fundamentally a situation where the president couldn't be impeached because there was not enough support in the legislature and the president could not pass any legislation because he didn't have a majority. This is a, a, a classic constitutional standoff and there was no mechanism like a vote of no confidence in a parliamentary system to, to end this government in a democratic way. Hence, they took out the bombers and blew the presidential palace to bits. We can't see that happen again. There's got to be mechanisms, escape valves to do something if you get in these unreconcilable standoffs that Chile has experienced and other Latin American countries have experienced in the past. I was thinking how we started, Peter, with you talking about your mentor being Arturo Valenzuela, right? And of course, the classic debate about what's better for democratic stability, presidential systems or parliamentary systems, right? And so that's exactly. that's been a constant sort of question, right? So what's our timeline? We should revisit this conversation after we've seen some progress, either after the thing is done, after it's been set aside, never ain't going to happen, or after at least there's been something more to talk about. Peter, what is your prediction of the next time we should check in? What's the next step? Well, the actual um, election of the Constituent Assembly is going to be the 11th of April, 2021. And I'm sorry, my life. <laughs> um, and the um, so at that point, what we'll know is who has been elected, who are these people. You'll hear from Jen and, Jen and me because we are laser focused on this and we have all those lists of last names right so we're right. going to be doing a lot of last right, name right, checking right, 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 right. <laughs> and, and we're going to look at what the composition who are these people right? so you think the next step you think the next step is evaluating who ends up getting picked to be yeah. on the right. to be uh, to be john hancock who, who gets to be picked to be right, alexander right. Do, does this meet the promise that we all hope it does or are all these the same names as usual right um, what's the socioeconomic status of these people? How did the indigenous seats play out? That's in April. And then once the constitution is drafted, we can watch that process being drafted, how votes are taking place, whether these two thirds majorities are, 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 are happening to approve aspects of the constitution. And then in the first half of 2022 is when Chileans will vote on a final document. If this convention, remember I said, if they're successful, and drafting a document and coming to consensus on getting a document. So I think it'd be interesting to talk after April. Jennifer, last thoughts from you. No, I mean I, you know, I I'm really interested in, in who runs. As I said, I'm not going to name names. I have some I have some thoughts. Um, but I think it's I think it's going to be an interesting campaign, right? Um, one of the other mechanisms that they haven't worked out yet is whether they're going to allow candidates for the constitutional convention to run independently, right, Peter? They're still debating that as well as the no, other seats. There, there's pro there's provisions you there's have to provisions. get a certain, you have to get a certain number of signatures in order to run okay. as an independent yeah so i think who runs as an independent versus who runs for the parties and we know that the parties are sort of closed shops in terms of who they who they pick 
So I just think there's going to be for real nerds about elections. Yeah. Um, this is going to be a really exciting, exciting process to see what happens. And then going back to how these powerful interests are going to be framing the campaign. Right. It's not just about who wins, but how are people going to position themselves in the campaign trail? Who are they going to be claiming to speak for if they get voted into the convention? And what are the best sources to, for people to be watching to, you know, it, it, they might not they might not have access to native sources. Where should they be watching yeah. if they're, let's say, an English speaker or they you know, they're right, right, reside in the United States? And there, you know, there might be people hopefully around the world that care about this. But so it doesn't have to be a U.S. source. But what sources would you suggest, Jennifer? I mean, I think this comes down to, you know, where where in the United States can you get good English language media coverage that's about countries that are not the United States? Um, you know, so certainly Al Jazeera yeah. and The Guardian have done some really good reporting about the protests, really good reporting about the process. Um, Peter, any other thoughts for English language sources? I was going to say Al Jazeera and The Guardian because, yeah. you know, th that's where I've sort of done my commentary on what's happening there. And they seem to be one of the few people that care about it, right? And for uh, folks, for folks that are on Twitter, um, some of the one of the Guardian journalists, a, a gentleman by the name of John Bartlett, who covers Chile for the Guardian, uh, puts a lot of information up on Twitter about what's going on. And there's some other English language journalists that you can follow. And what, what's the best? The what's the best Spanish speaking source, or a couple of the best Spanish speaking sources? Well, just going back to the English language course, uh, sources, there is a um, a publication called that's online that anyone can read, that has pretty good reporting called the Santiago Times. Right, so people can take a look at that if they want English, English language sources. Now, when it gets to Spanish language sources, that's more complicated because remember I talked about economic and political concentration of power. Yeah, there's also journalistic concentration of power. Right. So the two biggest newspapers in Chile, the two most read ones, El Mercurio y La Tercera, are controlled by these these economic conglomerates. So it's hard to get independent reporting. Got it. You have to go really really search around for alternative sources of information on social media, always trying to avoid low quality ones, obviously. Very helpful. I want to say thanks to both of you. This is something Thank that you. more people should be paying attention to if they genuinely, if they aren't only United Statesians, but are, are true democracy nerds and appreciate both of you spending this time. General Piscopo and Peter Ciavellas, thank you so much. Where can people check out more of your work? Jennifer? Thank you. Um, so I, you can Google me. I've got the happiness of having a distinctive last name. So I've got a website that links to all my publications and my media. And if you're on Twitter, I'm at at Jen Piscopo. That's J-E-N-N-P-I-S-C-O-P-O. -N -N -P -P and you can follow me there. And I post a lot about what I do and say in the media. And Peter. Um, yeah, I mean, I have uh, a name that's even more unique than. Well, I don't, I don't know about that. Peter. I don't have a fourth. <laughs> I don't have a fourth cousin named Piscopo. So, <laughs> okay, fair. Um, if you if you search Peter C. of Ellis, you'll find again my profile, my Google Scholar profile, with links to all of my publications and media uh, appearances, and you can check us out there. And I just want to put like one little plug in at the end, Jeff. Thank you for having us here. But you're right. Like democracy nerds should be all over this, right? I mean, it's a constitution drafted by a democratic government. It's going to have gender parity. Like, it's going to be a document. It's like better than Hamilton, right? I exactly. mean, it's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, people really need to care about this. And Chile always has historically attracted outsized attention for a country of its size, and it's doing it again. Jennifer, Peter, thanks so much for being Democracy Nerds, and thanks so much for spending a little bit of time with we Democracy Nerds, or I guess with us Democracy Nerds. Thank you so much. Cheers.
Democracy Nerd is produced and recorded in X-Ray Studios. Thanks to producer Kyle Curtis and Chase Spross. Thanks also to Cat Buckley for the graphics. I'm Jefferson Smith. We're at the beginning of this. Please subscribe and give us a five-star review, even if it is only in the hopes that we eventually earn it. Help spread the word. You can check out X-Ray's podcast page, xraypod.com, for past Democracy Nerd episodes and other X-Ray offerings. Thank you, Democracy Nerd.